You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. This morning, I need to warn you, we're going to cover a really large portion of Scripture. It's four chapters, 120 verses. Um, So we can do this a couple different ways, right? We can read through it, take a working lunch, kind of finish up by dinner, something like that. Um, Or just go around and each person take a section now, we cover this portion, of, don't worry, it's not going to be that scary. We cover this tremendous portion of Scripture in our series through Exodus uh, where God sends the ten plagues upon Egypt. So God has promised to rescue his people, and he has promised to not do it in the secrecy of night or under the veil of darkness, right? God's not going to secretly rescue his people from bondage of sin. He is going to do it in broad daylight, and as God puts it, he will do it by extending his strong arm of judgment against Egypt. And this section puts on broad display how God does that. I'm going to make the world known of, of who I am and my power and my relentless compassion for my people. And so these four chapters in Exodus 7 through 11 narrate these 10 plagues that God brings upon Egypt that would eventually force Pharaoh to let God's people go. And uh, I want to read the portion of scripture that I think that summarizes this whole four chapters really well. And it's in Exodus chapter 9. It's actually within the context of the seventh plague when God sends hail mixed with fire from the skies And it's in chapter 9, verse 13 to 21. So that's the portion we'll read for this morning. Exodus 9, verse 13 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. This is God's word. Well, in Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh asked the really important question. He said, who is the Lord? Maybe you remember when we covered that a few weeks ago. He said, who is the Lord? And here God shows him exactly who he is. He would find out that there's none like God. There is none like the God of the Hebrews. And God sends 10 plagues to show Pharaoh exactly who he is. He turns the, the Nile River into blood. He, tur- he sends frogs, so many frogs that every square inch of the ground is covered with them. He turns the dust to gnats. 
He sends flies. He kills all the Egyptian livestock. He sends boils on the skin of the people. Then he mixes hail with fire from the sky. Then he sends locusts. Then three days of complete darkness. And then finally, the tenth and final plague, the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt. The firstborn among slave, among free, among citizen, among every cattle. And at least three prominent things we come to learn about who God is and how he will stretch out his arm to let Egypt and Pharaoh know there is no one like him. Three things we learn from these plagues. We come to learn the will of God. We learn the supremacy of God and the care of God. And even though we're not reading all of these plagues in detail, I encourage you to maybe today, sometime this week, take some time slowly and, and read through them and see how God reveals himself to you in his will, his power, supremacy, and in his care. But let's look through these uh, few things this morning, how we come to learn first, how we come to learn the will of God. We come to know his desire, his purpose, his plan what he's like and what he cares about. What is it? What is the thing that God cares about? What's his purpose? It, it's no secret. God hasn't hidden it from us. His will is to rescue his people from the bondage of slavery. That's the will of God. In verse 13, let my people go so that they may serve me. This is something God says over and over and over again. As he goes through each and every one of these plagues, God repeats himself, let them go, let my people go so that they may serve me. God's will is to rescue his people from the bondage of slavery. To serve Pharaoh was slavery, but to serve God is freedom. First of all, let's just take a step and ask the question, what happened to Moses? If you read these, you, if you read the first six chapters of Exodus in one sitting, and then, this, and then the next six chapters in Exodus in another sitting, the two Moseses don't look anything alike. Remember his previous responses to God in chapter 2, when God told him, go to my people, I've heard their cries and seen their suffering, and I will rescue them. Go, Moses, and tell Pharaoh to set them free. Do you remember what Moses says? He says, who am I? Who are you? What do I say? I don't speak very well. And then finally he says, please send somebody else. And now we have Moses confident and clear, having confident and clear conversations with the God of the universe and the most powerful human in the world. Bold, confident, sure of himself, sure of what God is doing. These are two different Moses. He, in a way, has been rescued already. Moses has been set free, in a sense, of the kind of bondage and slavery that he was experiencing. Moses had been rescued from a certain kind of slavery. Moses was a deflated man, a man with no self-esteem. He had, he had resigned himself to his own failures in his life. He doubted God. He doubted his own abilities, he doubted his dignity and his identity, and the passing of time in the wilderness, 40 years for Moses, didn't seem to do anything good as to helping him become a more confident, self-assured person. Moses carried in his life his failures, and they were with him always, and he was, in a sense, in, a sense, in bondage to his 
sin and his failure in his life. And slowly, God was taking Moses and transforming him, transforming him into the person that God wanted him to be. He assured Moses, I will be with you. I will provide for you. I will give you the things to say. I will never leave you. I will not abandon you. I will be with your words. I will be with your mouth, and I will not let you down. And this rescued Moses from the kind of bondage that he was in to his failures. At some point, Moses believed God, and it set him free. He, at some point, Moses believed that God will be with me. He will provide for me. He will strengthen me. He will go before me, and he will not let me down. And that gave him a sense of real freedom, where nothing could happen to him that could take away the reality of who God was to him. Imagine every time a package came to your house, which in our case, this like happens every single day in our house, right? Doorbell rings at 1230 every day. <laughs> It's the UPS man or woman, it's the delivery driver has come to bring a package. Now imagine you went to the front porch, you opened the package, and, and as you opened it, out came a fist and punched you in the face. Now just kind of track with me here. You find that odd and strange and peculiar, a little bizarre, and you say, well, that, that's strange. And you kind of go about your day. The next day a package comes and happens again. You open the package, a fist comes out and punches you in the face. And this goes on every day for 40 years. And eventually, a package comes, you even just hear the doorbell ring, or you see the UPS driver getting close to your house. And maybe, maybe this time you're like, send one of your kids out or something, right? Like, hey, would you mind go getting that package for Daddy? You know. Sooner or later, sooner or later, this is just part of like how you see the world. You've learned to see these, the, the UPS driver through the eyes of fear, and doubt, and worry. And if someone came to you and said, you don't have to worry. We, we changed the driver. We, we changed the, the delivery service. There's no fist in the box. You're not taking your chances. <laughs> I don't think you are. You're saying, uh, I don't know. I'm still sending my kids out there to get that package. You've learned how to live. You've learned how to go through life. You've carried your pains with you, your failures, your insecurities, and you just don't know how to see it any differently anymore. And this is kind of like how we go through life a lot. We trust in who God says that we are. We trust, you know, we, we, we can say, like, I believe God loves me. God cares for me. God is with me. I've seen too many fists come out of that box, though. I know he's not going to give up on me. I know that he loves me more than anyone who's ever lived. But we live in a world with a lot of, a lot of bad memories of our failures. We live in, in a world of a lot of letdowns and a lot of disappointments and a lot of hurts. And, and so we live just in bondage to that reality. But when we believe God's word, when we trust in what he says about us, when there's, there, there can be this true and real kind of rescue that rescues us from the bondage of that kind of sin, the bondage of living in slavery, always in fear, always worrying, always with this distorted view of our identity and who we are. And when God says, this is who you are, this is how I love you, you are the object of my affection, and I see your suffering, I see your struggle, and I will rescue you from slavery. 
At some point, Moses believed it. At some point, he was rescued from that to be able to communicate not just with God, but, but also the most powerful human being in the world. God said, hail is coming and I'll kill anyone outside. And those who feared the word of God and believed in him were saved. And those who didn't pay attention to God and didn't pay attention to his words were killed. Not taking God's word seriously is the suicidal action of the will against itself. You see, God reveals his will to us. His will is, I have, I am to, my, my will is to rescue you from the bondage of sin in your life. And we want to take him seriously. We want to take his word seriously. And he brings his word to, to Moses. He brings his word to Pharaoh. He brings his word to his people and all who hear it. And those who take him seriously are rescued from it. But those who don't, it's like a suicidal action against the will, of the will against itself. It's like hurting yourself. When we don't listen to God, when we don't take him seriously, when we don't regard his words as an invitation to life and to freedom from slavery, we hurt ourselves. Pharaoh is a case study. Uh, maybe one of the best in all of the Bible of this slow motion car crash of what not listening to God accomplishes for our lives. God says, let my people go so that they can worship me. And he says, okay, well, you can worship God, but you, you, you have to do it here within the land of Egypt. And God comes back and says, let my people go away from here so that they can worship me. And he says, okay, well, the, the men can go, but the women and children have to stay. And, he, and then God comes back again and says, let them go, every single one of them. Okay, you can go, but all your possessions and all the cattle need to stay. He says, let my people go with everything they have so that they can make a sacrifice to me and worship me. And he says, okay, well, just pick a couple of the sacrifices that you want and go. Moses is telling Pharaoh God's word and the will of God, and Pharaoh wants to obey it just a little bit, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and God wants him to obey every bit of it. To obey him partly is to disobey him completely. And these 10 plagues are here to show us the will of God, what he desires. The punishment, which is to show us the punishment of the sin of disobedience and the rescue of his people from the bondage of sin. What he says matters. Moses tells us here explicitly that those who paid attention to God, listened to his word, and did what he said and were spared of the plague. The plagues also show us not just the will of God and what he desires, that he desires to rescue us from that kind of bondage, but also so that we can come to know the supremacy of God. What's most important about these plagues is what they tell us about the one who sent them. These plagues show us most importantly who God is, what he is like. God is declaring he's the only true God. He's the only relevant God. There is no one like him. He's the only God worth obeying. He's the only God worth worshiping. 
And God says in no uncertain terms, I will send these plagues upon you so that you will know that there's no one like me in all the earth. The 10 plagues correlate to the 10 Egyptian deities that the Egyptian people worshiped. And God goes head to head with them, one at a time. In turn, God defeats them. He crushes them. He shows them powerless. He judges them and brings judgment upon those deities. The 10 plagues are a direct judgment on what we could call the, you know, the you do you theology. Or what I call, and, and I trademark this, uh, the DIY theology. <laughs> so, I, so I get royalties on that if you use it and make money off of it. No, the DIY theology, right? The do-it-yourself theology. It's where each person gets to determine what's right. It's where each person gets to determine what God desires for me, how he wants me to live, what is truth, what's valuable, what opinions should I follow, I was in a coffee shop this week, and um, they posted all over one of the walls, like all these, like you could come in and write all these like inspirational notes, like quotes, right, and post them on the wall. These things that you want to, you want to be kind to one another, you want to say these nice things, you want to just bring encouragement to people that might come in. So this whole wall is posted, and, and I had a lot of fun reading these, as you can imagine, and I want to share some of them uh, with you, because these are a perfect example of kind of DIY theology. One said this, uh, it's all up to you. Now, this, is, this doesn't encourage me, okay? I don't know if that encourages you. You're, you're all alone in this. Sorry, it's, it's all up to you. I th- someone genuinely wanted like, to encourage and bring blessing, but this, is a, this can be a value. This can be a God. This can be an idol. That our life is up to us. That we create our life. That we're in charge of everything that happens. Another says this, you are enough. Do we have that one? Now, I, I get, now in, in a sense, I don't want to like dismantle this completely because in, in a sense, we have this worth being made in the image of God. And we are not, but, but it also makes me feel super lonely too. Uh, you're enough. What does that say to you? Uh, and here's another one. If it doesn't make you happy, drop it. Now, I get that too, right? But man, if we did that... <laughs> So I just wanted to like drop my coffee right, right when, that, when, when I read that, right? <laughs> so if someone makes you uncomfortable, stop pursuing them. If someone offends you, walk away from them. If you don't like your job, resign. If you don't like your marriage, quit. That's, not, that's, a, that's, a, that's a DIY kind of philosophy. Just forget it. Or, or this one, do not apologize for who you are. Now, I'm a, I can be a really angry person. And I, and I now have permission to never apologize to you about that. Now, this, I think this next one was really, really trying to be positive, but it just ended up being really, really sad. Uh, okay, enjoy life. Today is the youngest you'll ever be. Oh, man, thanks a lot. Right, that was... Someone in their 20s wrote that. You know, like, this is not, like, that was really sad. But the, not all were bad. Some were really, really awesome. Like, I love you more than Kanye loves Kanye. So there were some really good ones. <laughs> so DIY theology really, it leads us to worship things or people. DIY theology always leads us to worship heart idols. 
whatever we put like supreme value to and say, this is what I need to be happy, anything other than God, that becomes a false deity. It becomes an idol of our hearts and we have to worship it. If there is anything in your life more important than God, then this thing or person becomes your God and it will continually say to you, if you want to be happy, you must serve me. If you want to be happy, then everything in your life needs to be oriented around this. And if this doesn't happen, or if this person doesn't love you, or if this thing doesn't happen that you want to happen, you will be miserable. That thing has become your God. And God says, there's no one like me in all the earth. There is no one to to whom you can compare me. There is no one whose opinion matters more than mine. There is no love greater than the love that I extend to you. Like Pharaoh, our little Our our, our idols in our hearts will say, serve me or die. Pharaoh is saying, serve me and only me or die. The people, the, the Hebrew people had become for Pharaoh a type of idol. He, because he had become mad, he had become like a slave to his own sin, his own idolatry, his own worship. Like Pharaoh, our little idols will say the same thing. If you want to be a good parent, that is a very, very good endeavor. But if you must be a good parent, and if you're not a good parent, you just don't know how you'll be able to live with yourself, that thing has become an idol. If you want to be successful in your career, that is a very good, God-honoring endeavor. But if you must be successful in your career, and if you aren't, you will feel like a complete and utter failure, then your career has become a God to you that you must serve. If you want people to think well of you, you see where I'm going with this? We could just add anything in here. How do you know if if things in your life have become a God? that you have put in the place of the only God? Well, here's a good diagnostic question. How do you feel when that thing or person is taken away from you? Now, I'm not talking about healthy grieving. I'm not talking about a healthy grief that comes as a result of a loss of a person you love or a loss of a situation in your life that you cared about. I'm talking about when we just do not know, we cannot know who we are or how we will be okay without something or someone in our life. Because so much of who we are and what was important to us was really hanging on that thing. Consider Pharaoh. Moses said to him, God says, let my people go. And he says, you can go. But then he immediately regretted it when they started to walk away. And he called them back. He does this so many times. He says to Moses, I will let you go if you ask God to relent from his plagues. And Moses says, are you sure? And he says, I'm sure. And so he prays to ask God to relent from the plagues. God responds in that way 
relents his anger, and Pharaoh says, guess what? He says, never mind. Back to where he started. You can't go. He does this so many times. Because he could not handle the idea of not having that control over other people. He could, not, he could not handle the idea of not being able to lord over and oppress those people. Because so much of his identity in being a king rested in them being there and being oppressed. And if they were God, what, gone, what did that mean about him? That he was defeated. That he lost. That there's someone more powerful than him. If Moses came in and said, let my people go, and Pharaoh said, okay, they can go, then he's left with a decimated economy, with a confused identity of his people, with with his workforce completely wiped out. He couldn't handle that because it reflected so much on him. And so he hardened his heart. He dug in his heels, and he was, in fact, a slave to his own sin. God says, there's no one like me in all the earth. And I'm going to do this to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What does God have power over? He shows us, and not just here in these plagues, but all throughout his scriptures, he has power over the hearts of people and all the resources of heaven and earth. Everything. What is at God's disposal? Everything. God is not subordinate to any one or any one thing. God, in fact, everything is a servant of God. Everything must come under the, the authority and lordship of, of God. Everything. People have attempted to explain these plagues away through like natural means, right? As, as historians have studied, because these, they can't get around the fact that these plagues actually happened. It's documented in history. But they're like, well, these, we can explain it through like natural means. So there's these red clay at the bottom of the Nile. And if that gets stirred up enough, it kind of appears that the water is red. But we know in Scripture that it wasn't just the Nile that turned to blood, but every water in all of the land, if you had a cup of water on your nightstand, it turned to blood. Explain that. The ninth plague was the plague of darkness. And some will say, well, we've had solar eclipses. We had one this week. Solar eclipses happen all the time, and darkness comes over the land, and we know more about how that works now. Three days of complete darkness. And how about this little tidbit? It was completely dark in Egypt, but the little town and portion of Egypt that the Hebrews lived in, complete light for three days the whole time. Now, you've been in a, like a monsoon rain, and, and like sometimes in the front yard, it's pouring, and in the backyard, it's like broad daylight, and you're like, this is so cool, but that lasts for like six seconds. Now, if that lasted for three days, it's time to repent of your sins, okay? If it's always raining in your front yard and always sunshine in your backyard, you probably did something wrong, and you need to ask for forgiveness. So, this is what God is showing. These are not natural means. These are supernatural Supernatural actions. God's mighty hand is being extended to show his power, to show his might, to show his supremacy, that he has power over every heart and everything in heaven and earth is at his disposal. And what is his purpose with that? How does God use his almighty power to rescue his people from bondage? To bring his people to himself? Tyrants, dictators like Pharaoh will use their power to oppress and to hurt and to 
harm. And God uses his limitless power to rescue his people and to bring them close. There's no one like God. He is not just one voice among many voices in our world. He is the supreme voice in the midst of a lot of chatter. We live in a DIY world and that keeps us in bondage. The only way to find rescue from such bondage is to know the God who is unlike any other. To pay attention to what he says about who we are. To pay attention to what he says about who he is. To surrender completely to him in humble reliance and rest. Through the plagues, we also see and come to know the care of God. Now, this may be strange because in a, in a story of such carnage, it might be kind of intuitive to think about how is this expressing the care of God. And here is how the same matchless power that crushes the wicked is the same power that acts to shelter and protect his people. The God who shows his like limitless power, his relentless compassion, it's the same God who shows, is able to shelter his people, provide for his people, protect his people, and to bring about his plans that he has for his people. You see, when God says, let my people go so that they can serve me, it's true that when the Bible uses this particular word to serve, it does mean to work. It does mean to, to work, right? To, to worship is kind of what it means. But there is a sense of work in here. And it's, it's true about that, but it's never used. Whenever the Bible uses this word for serve, it is never used in a sense of laboring or toiling, but always in a sense of joyful liberation, a joyful experience of liberation. Why do we sing when we gather? It's for the very same reason. We are rescued. God says, I'm going to rescue my people so that they can go sing, is kind of what he is saying. So that they, I'm going to liberate them, and from that experience of liberation, they will serve me in worship and in joy. The plagues show us the very important picture of God's grace and pleasure for his people. All people are going to work in one of two ways. Every single one of us are going to work in this life in one of two ways. It'll be a, a spiritual work, a kind of spiritual work that is always in bondage. We're always working to save ourselves. We're always working for others to love us. We're always working for God to accept us and to be pleased with us. We're always toiling. We're always laboring. We're always laboring for the affirmation of others to feel good enough, to feel like we matter to them and to God. But then there's another kind of work, and it's the kind of work actually that God calls us to. A kind of work that is less like the work that we know that is toiling and a, more of a kind of work that is like singing. It's like the kind of work that is required for a drowning person to reach out to grab a lifesaver. Oh, so much work. <laughs> yeah, there is, there is, yes, there is a sense of like, there's a sense of action here. There's a sense of effort. But it's not like bondage. It's like salvation. It's like freedom. God had his heart set on his people. 
and nothing would get in his way to love and rescue them. Was it because they were more obedient? No. We know that to be true, that it wasn't because they were more obedient. Was it because that their desires were more pure? Absolutely not. The New Testament tells us so clearly in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul connects connects the New Testament with these actions of God in Egypt. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. The Hebrews were not rescued because of the quality of their faith. The Hebrews weren't rescued because they tried harder to obey God. You and I are not rescued because of the quality of our faith or the amount of exertion that we put forth to be loved by God. In the midst of our own plagues, of our own struggles, the point that God is wanting to make is not that we need to get our act together, but to surrender our lives to his care. We are not saved because of the quality of our faith, but because of the object of our faith and the God who is fighting for us. God wants Moses to know this. God wants his people to know this. I will rescue you. Watch what I do. Watch what I can do. Watch how my mighty arm will be outstretched and the same arm that crushes your enemies will be the same arm that gathers you close in the shelter of my love. Now, I've not said in a very important word yet today in this sermon. And in fact, if I don't say this word, it's not a sermon at all. <laughs> and that's the word Jesus. Now, I want you to know the history of this story and what God is doing among the Egyptians and in his people. And I'm not just tacking on the name Jesus at the end of this sermon just to make sure I get it in there, right? In fact, an understanding of what Jesus did on the cross helps us to understand the magnitude and importance and the beauty of what God did in Egypt with those 10 plagues. When we see what Jesus did and understand this story in Exodus through the context of this fulfillment of God's salvation for his people at the cross, it makes this story more valuable. What God was doing in these plagues is bringing judgment on disobedience. That's what he's doing. He is judging sin. He is judging rebellion. And he is crushing false gods. And Egypt's sin, as a result of Egypt's sin, all of these plagues, the wrath of God is being poured out on Egypt. God is pouring it out, literally from the heavens, from the skies. He is sending all of his judgment on the land. And there is no escape but in the care of God. There's no escape from this judgment. And so if, if you don't want God to pour out his judgment on you, then never turn your back on God. 
No, that's wrong. I'm just, I'm wanting to see if you're paying attention. The Jewish people turned their back on God. Moses turned his back on God. What is the difference? What's the difference between the Hebrew people and, and the Egyptians where God spared the Hebrew people and didn't spare Pharaoh and the Egyptians? It's because the Hebrews had a mediator. They had Moses, God's appointed savior, God's appointed redeemer that could identify with the Hebrew people as he was a Hebrew himself and identify with God as a spokesperson and mouthpiece for God. But guess what? We have a better mediator. This go-between, the one who will stand in our place representing us. God became man, fully human, tempted in every way that you and I have been tempted. Became hum- humbled himself even to the point of death, humiliation of life, bore in himself the full pouring out of all the plagues of God's wrath on the disobedience of sin. This is what Jesus did on the cross. The kind of anger and judgment that God poured out on Egypt, God poured out on Jesus because he hung there in our place for our sin. And throughout life, we may try to say, okay, I'm not going to turn my back on God so that I can be spared from this judgment. We cannot outrun our sin. We cannot outrun our disobedience. And so God had to come. One who was perfectly sinless. One who was also perfectly human. We have a better mediator. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. He never turned his back on God his Father. And God poured out all of the plagues on him, and he was crushed. The hail and fire of heaven came down and killed Jesus because of what you and I have done. And then he was buried and he rose, proving that there is none like him in all the earth. There is no God like him crushing sin itself. He's the only reason that you and I can be rescued. He's the only reason that you and I can know, or only way that you and I can know the care that God has for us. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you, today, if you hear his voice, don't close your ears to his welcome, to his invitation. Today, if you hear his voice, Believe, confess, and rest. Because God has sent his son to save us. To save us from the bondage of sin that we can never save ourselves from.